Thanks, Sean. Uh, we'll take a moment to pray, but we're in a series right now. Before I pray, just to set this up for uh, newcomers, uh, see a few new faces. Um, in the Gospel of John, in, in specifically these different identity statements that Jesus makes about himself, there's seven of them in the Gospel of John. So we've been looking at each of these throughout Lent, and we're on I Am the Good Shepherd this morning, obviously. So we're going to explore what that means for us as we follow Jesus. So let's take a moment to pray about that, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you for, again, your word. Uh, thanks that we, as we open it up in community, it, it opens our, our lives up, reveals to us places in which we are being challenged to grow by you. Uh, we also ask for encouragement this morning from you, God, from your spirit. So as we uh, open your word together, would you challenge and encourage us? Would you lead us and guide us as this scripture even says you do? And we do this uh, praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, I'm the Good Shepherd. I'm sure you've heard a couple of sermons about this. This is one of Jesus' most famous things he's probably ever said. Um, let me get my notes open. Uh, shepherding, and this is kind of part two. We, last week, Jenny preached on I'm the Gate, which is the first ten verses of John 10. So we're looking at the last, or the second part of this. And shepherding is one of the, I'll just dive in, one of the main metaphors in the Bible. If you read the Bible, or to cover sometime, you'll see shepherding all the time. And it's not just because there's a lot of sheep in the ancient Near East, though I imagine that's part of it. It's this sort of main metaphor to understand God and ourselves. So around 400 times, we as people are identified as sheep in the Bible. That's a lot. And so then, and then God is identified over 100 times as shepherd in the Bible. So it's, it's this really important metaphor for understanding who God is and as well as who we are. And in particular, if you read it, over and over again, it's the main way in which the Bible talks about the theme of leadership. So, for example, in Ezekiel 34, if you read the passage there, which is kind of the, it provides the backdrop for John 10, actually. So read it sometime. God tells Ezekiel, who's this prophet in this time, to speak out against the injustice and all the corruption and the evil that's destroying the nation of Israel at that time. It's ripping them apart. Here's what Ezekiel 34, verses 2 and 3 say. Son of man... This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. So the shepherds of Israel were the leaders of Israel. They were the magistrates and the kings, religious leaders even. So pastors, priests. And their job was to provide as leaders a care, structure, justice. Uh, they were to provide this kind of society for the people. And the tragedy in Ezekiel's time, as well as many other times in the Bible, if you read about this kind of theme coming up, is they were failing at their job, utterly failing at their job. They were not good shepherds. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Not only that, then God is famously, you know this Psalm 23, famously described as the shepherd of the people of God. So Psalm 23, and specifically as their leader. Listen to this. You know these words probably. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me. There's that word, beside still waters. He guides me, there's another leadership word, along the right path for his name's sake. So throughout the Bible, you read about shepherding. Cute sheep, you can count sheep, go to sleep, it's nice. But really what's being discussed at a root level is this is an examination of leadership. Our leadership of God's people and God's leadership of us. And it doesn't matter if you're an elected leader or if you're a, a manager or if you're a parent, every one of us has influence in our lives in some way, shape, or form. 
Youngest to oldest, we are leaders in some way. So shepherding is for you. It's about leadership. And it's important because of that, but also because we're facing, I'll just say this, a, a crisis of leadership today in our world. So according to the 2015 Pew survey on gl the global agenda, <laughs> which is a thing, it's conducted by the World Economic Forum, 86% of people worldwide say that we're in the midst of a world leadership crisis. That's startling. 86% of the people in the world today say that we're facing a crisis of leadership. And it's on multiple fronts. Within government, it's obvious. I don't need to go into it. I don't think I need to say more. Within the broader international community, which has been tasked with dealing with things like climate change, the refugee crisis, terrorism, and seems at the same time powerless to deal with those things. Uh, this is NATO. This is those organizations like that. Within even religious communities, listen to this. Do you know that the only institution that ranks, low, that ranks uh, higher, just above government, so the government's the lowest ranking institution in the world, just above government, you know where this is going, religious institutions, churches, mosques, religion, is the second lowest ranked institution in the world when it comes to leadership or corruption. So 58% of respondents to this survey had concerns that their religious leaders would abuse their positions. 56% thought they were, that these religious leaders were unlikely to be of any help in addressing global situations, global crises. Like religion's good on Sunday, but really when it comes to the real world, we'll go to whoever else, you know. And this is confirmed by hard evidence. You know, there's sexual abuse and scandals in churches throughout, not just Catholic churches, Protestant churches. There's a sharp rise in religious violence and terrorism and extremism. There's widespread participation in sort of uh, money, money scams and things, you know. People that are asking their congregants for money to get a private plane. This is a real thing. So when looked at through the lens of leadership, like leadership, this leadership crisis we are facing today, all of us in the room, shepherding is like, is the ultimate metaphor that God could ever use to uh, speak to us, to describe both his identity as well as kind of what we're called into. In other words, I think this is kind of what Jesus is saying, to put it in that, that frame of mind. I'm the good shepherd. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give you life. In other words, I've come to solve your leadership crisis. I've come to solve your global leadership crisis. I've come to solve your basic human leadership crisis. If you're feeling inadequate as a leader today in your life, Jesus is coming to deal with that and offer uh, help. <laughs> So the question, if that's you, if you're in the room and you're going, yeah, okay, I could learn a little bit about leadership. How? <laughs> How does Jesus do that? And to answer the question, we're just simply going to look at two aspects of Jesus' declaration, the I am the good shepherd declaration today. So we're going to look at who he is. Always good to look at who Jesus is, especially when he says, I am something. What does that mean to say, I am the good shepherd? And then what he does. And both of those are going to inform leadership. It's going to, they're going to inform God's leadership of us and then help us, I think, resolving some of our own crises of leadership. So first, who Jesus is. I'm the good shepherd. So Jesus is good, to be quite blunt. We could move on now. I'm kidding. I'm going to unpack that. <laughs> What's interesting about this word good is, in this verse is it has a dual meaning. So uh, it can mean good, like if you looked up good in the dictionary, as I did this week, to possess or display moral virtue. That's what we think of as good, right? to be a good person, to be an obedient person, someone worthy of respect. Could mean that. I suppose there's an aspect of that which Jesus is saying because he knows, obviously, the backdrop. Ezekiel 34, bad shepherds, 
They need a good shepherd. So they need somebody who's going to be trustworthy, who's going to, they could pattern their lives after, right? That's part of this, I think. But there's another, there's another dimension to this word. Good, the Greek word is kalos here. It's, it's not the common Greek word for good. So when you see good throughout the New Testament, often it's this other word. Kalos is this really unique word. It means beautiful. So I'm the beautiful shepherd, which is, you know, a really important distinction if you think about it. Because if, you know, there's not a single modern translation out there that says this. I'm going to stand up here and try and make this case right now that I think it's more important. Because they're vastly different when you think about goodness in, in the sense of moral obedience and beauty, Right? So the Archbishop William Temple, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II. He saw really terrible things happen, right, in Europe. He's one translator and commentator on John. He has this commentary that's really amazing on John. He says this and that in John 10. He's inviting us to consider goodness as beauty. Here's a quote. It is important that the word good here is, in one respect, it represents not moral rectitude or austerity, but attractiveness. Indeed, in this, think of his context in World War II. It is possible to be morally upright repulsively. Morally, think of World War II and the church's uh, cooperation with Hitler and the Nazis. It's possible to be morally upright repulsively. And then he goes on to say, in the Lord Jesus, we see, that the, we see the beauty of holiness. He was good in such a way to draw all men, women, and children to himself. And this beauty of goodness is supremely seen in the act by which he would so draw them where he lays down his life for his sheep. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So, and then Temple says, so we should translate this really as I am the shepherd beautiful. The good shepherd, I'm the shepherd beautiful. And as the shepherd beautiful, Jesus is saying, look at me, yeah, I'm good. I'm excellent, I'm, I'm trustworthy, but not merely as an example. If you just try and follow Jesus as an example, he will crush you. His life is impossible. He is the only person that's ever lived the perfect Christian life. The only one. This is, what, this is the conclusion Paul comes to in Romans 7 when he says, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't. Who's going to help me? <laughs> I'm a wreck, you know? Uh, so who can do good apart from Jesus? Nobody. That's the $10,000 question, which is just the point. Jesus is saying, look to me. I'm the author. I'm the perfecter of your faith. But don't copy me. Behold me. Uh, see my beauty. Behold my beauty. Behold the, the goodness of my beauty. And let that be attractive to your heart. Uh, and, indeed, beauty is attractive, isn't it? That's, and I think that's Jesus' agenda throughout the Gospel of John, is to attract us, to woo our hearts toward God. Uh, not to give us a new law, but to woo us into relationship with God. In 1999, uh, the Harvard English professor, Elaine Scarry, shared this book. Uh, it's entitled On Beauty and Being Just. It's kind of a little philosophical tract. And she's trying to illustrate the power of beauty to draw us out. I invite you to read it sometime. Here's a quote from her book. What is the felt experience of cognition at the moment one stands in the presence of a beautiful boy or girl or a flower or a bird? Lots of cherry blossoms around right now. How many of you went out to the quad this weekend, like with 50,000 other people? Beautiful, right? And those poor cherries are going to drop to the ground in just a few days. Beauty, Elaine Scarry says, brings copies of it into being. Think of Jesus bringing copies of himself into being in these cherry trees. Amazing. And then she goes on to say, it makes, it, draw, it makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. In this way, Scarry says, beautiful things have a forward momentum to them. The way they incite the desire to bring new things into the world. Infants. 
epics, drawings, dances, laws, and theological tracts. And do you see what Elaine Scarry is saying there? That, this be- that beauty in our world has a sort of inherent form- forward momentum, a sort of propelling for a gust of wind that's carrying, it along, carrying you along with it. And of course, I'll pause here. There's all kinds of problems with this argument <laughs> when you think about it, right? Lots of them. Let me just name a couple. Because I'm afraid when most of us hear that word beauty, you hear me translating Jesus saying, I'm the beautiful shepherd, beautiful leader, Behold me, behold my beauty, allow it to draw you. We think immediately, snap right to physical beauty, didn't you? I mean, I did it with the cherry blossoms. Physical beauty. You may hear that and you think of Beauty and the Beast, which is a great movie, by the way. I saw it with Marin last Sunday. Awesome, if you haven't seen it. Both if you have a daughter and if you don't. I see someone tapping somebody else's knee. Like, go and see it with, with Elise. That would be a good move. By the way, we think, we think of beauty in that sense as outward beauty. Physical beauty, subjective beauty. And more seriously, uh, we think of all the cultural distortions of beauty and physicality out there. How we call some things beautiful because they look good to us and some things ugly because they don't. Subjective beauty. How we, ob- we objectify other people for their outward appearance, right? Uh, how we put so much emphasis and pressure on people to look a certain way, weigh a certain amount, dress by certain standards. In particular, women, just a quick side here, in our society bear an immense pressure and an immense amount of weight around this issue. Like our society, especially the men in the room here, I hope you're listening, put all kinds of emphasis on female beauty. And when we do, here's what happens. We look at women as things to possess, things to, I, I jealously come and take control of. That we have leaders that do this is sickening, right? Uh, we marginalize women who don't live up to the ideal. We try to possess the women who do. Think about pornography, for a second. What is pornography? It's a, it's a gross and twisted attempt at definitely beauty. That's what it is. Uh, pornography is never about healthy sexuality or healthy intimacy. Never. Don't ever go down that track. It is always, in, in every way, bent and broken and twisted beauty, an attempt at that. And, and that's what I think is the danger in this metaphor of, of Jesus when he says... I'm the good shepherd. I'm, in fact, one of Elaine Scarry's staunchest critics. He's a former professor at uh, Columbia University, Todd Gitlin. He wrote this scathing review of her book you can find online. Right after she wrote it, this is like 2001, he notes that the Nazis during World War II, go back to William Temple, World War II Nazis, they were extremely well known, like really famous in fact, for being connoisseurs of beauty and art and music and theater. So for example, in Poland, after the occupation of Poland in 1939, September of 39. The Nazi regime, they were attempting to exterminate the entire Polish society. Their their middle classes, their upper classes, the Jews, their culture. But you know what they did at the same time? They hoarded thousands upon thousands. In fact, an estimated $20 billion in artifacts, artistic artifacts. Over 516,000 pieces of individual art were found in the Nazi sort of archives from Poland. It's stunning. And... (laughs) You know, like Gitlin said in this quote, he, in his review, they could, they're the only people in the world that could exterminate people by day and then go to a Mozart opera or whatever at night. So he leads, this, it leads him to this conclusion that while beauty is attractive, great, get your argument, scary, it's destructive. It's equally destructive. We should never go down that path. So what can Jesus be possibly saying? If there's a nuance here even, 
I mean, I'll take goodness as, you know, just morality then. That's way less dangerous. Well, here's what I think he's saying. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the shepherd beautiful, he's saying, I think, you should never pursue or desire beauty and abstraction. It's never an abstract thing. Never. Because it's never in isolation. It's, It's never the thing that you pursue in and of itself. That, just like just going after goodness as a sort of morality will crush you. It'll lead to death and destruction and, and violence. Instead, always seek and frame and pursue beauty in me. I am, ego a me, the good shepherd. I am the shepherd beautiful. Those are bound together forever. In other words, the thing that makes beauty beauty is Jesus. Jesus is the beauty uh, and so the key for us is, is that when Jesus Christ occupies that much space in your life, not just in the peripheral vision of your life, but centrally, when he is what you see in the world, when you look out at the world, when you, when you, more beautiful to you than your lover, more beautiful to you than your children and their success, more beautiful to your hearts than fine art and music, more beautiful than the mountains, your career, your financial security, our politics, more beautiful and just more attractive than that, when he is that, when he's your vision for goodness, what he's saying, the promise he's saying here is, I will lead your lives. I'll direct your lives. I'll guide and shape your lives in the ways, John 10, 10, they never have been before. I'll lead you to abundant life. That's the promise here. And so the second question remains then, how? So great, love that Jesus is beautiful, how do I engage an encounter in that beauty? Because uh, it's dangerous, <laughs> but it's transformative. So give me some handles. And this is the second thing I want to explore with you is the, the things Jesus does in this passage we're going to look at. So there's three of them. A little fill in the blank if you have a bulletin. So to keep you hanging with me, okay? So the first thing here is the first thing Jesus does is in verses 11 to 13. He gathers the scattered, okay? So let me read verses 11 to 13 just to get us back on the same page, Okay? Uh, this is from the Phillips translation, John. <laughs> I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd will give his life for the sake of his sheep, but the hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, will see the wolf coming, desert the sheep, and run away. And the wolf will attack the flock and send them flying. The hired hand runs away because he's only a hired hand. He has no interest in his sheep. So here's what Jesus is saying. A couple of new characters in the story. You have a wolf a hired hand, and you have the shepherd. And suddenly, if you just look at it from that perspective, you have a scene, you have a story, you have, some, you have a plot line. You have this sort of engaging picture, right? There's a wolf, and there's this guy, and he runs away, and there's Jesus, he's the shepherd, okay? So the key is, in looking at it in that sense, is this declaration of identity, I'm the good shepherd, is not primarily a, a theological statement Jesus is making. He wasn't writing a commentary on what it means, He's telling a story. He, Jesus often told stories. Favorite way of teaching, parables. And this is like a little parable in some ways. Uh, so you look at this. Most commentators actually, like I said, suggest that Jesus is pointing back to a place in the Bible. Very significant place, Ezekiel 34. If you read Ezekiel 34, it's the longest passage on shepherding in the whole Bible. Whole chapter on it. And Jesus, commentators will say, is pointing back to that just by setting the stage. With the wolf. There's wolves in Ezekiel 34. There's bad shepherds. And there's a good shepherd. 
So in that passage, let me just talk about it. You don't have to turn there now, but God denounces the shepherds of Israel, and who, like I said earlier, were their leaders, because they didn't care for God's flock, the people, okay? So they've abdicated their calling as leaders, and they're neglecting the weak, they're failing to care for the sick, they're ignoring those who are straying. And as a result, they've kind of allowed their nation to be plundered by the Babylonians, all these outside forces, the so-called wolves, okay? There's your characters. And they've been scattered to the four corners of the earth. So all the commentators agree that what Ezekiel's talking about in that passage is the dispersion of the Jews, the great diaspora. You've heard of the diaspora of the Jews, where they are sent by this dark storm of national exile, okay? So the nation of Israel is exiled. That's the, that's the point. They're scattered to, all across Babylon. This is the point in Isaiah. This is the point in Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All these prophets are talking about a, a nation in exile. And the key, the key here is the image of scattering and wandering sheep, sheep without a shepherd, <laughs> is, this in, is a frequent designation in the Bible for people lacking leadership. They have no leader. And sheep, <laughs> when they don't have a leader just kind of wander. Matthew and I were talking about this morning. They just kind of go their own way, which ultimately means for sheep, death, if you take it as a natural conclusion, because they're cut off from their life source. Their shepherd was their protector and the provider. Sheep have no means of protecting themselves. Their teeth are useless. They have no claws. Even their ba is a little bit soothing, right? It's like, it's a buffet of shawarma there, you know? And they have no provider. They have been known to gorge themselves on things like sheep dung and die. They will do this. And so what Ezekiel is saying is no natural means of defense, no natural means of provision, scattered sheep, no shepherd, you're dead. That's what God is saying. Ezekiel, that's what Jesus is kind of saying. You're dead. You're better off dead than a a scattered sheep, Uh, which for Israel meant this exile they were in, okay? It just meant they were facing extinction and annihilation as a people. Uh, so as a nation, they were dead because they were in exile. And the people that Jesus is speaking to are, might as well be dead too. So let's stand back for a second. You're like, hey, that's interesting. Thanks for that little historical fact, Jack. Thanks for the little insight into lamb. <laughs> I'm going to go have my hero or hero or hiro or however you say that. Um, I'm not a sheep. We're not Israel. This is an exile. Right? This is America. You're not? <laughs> and this isn't? I mean, really. Think about it. See, I, I believe this has a lot to do with us. A lot to do with us. And with me and you, okay? Because the Bible, again and again and again, says that exile is something that all of us, doesn't matter what country you live in, doesn't matter if government's in power, doesn't matter if you're <laughs> a sheep or not, all of us are, are swept up in it. To be alive in the world today is to be in exile, to have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. All like sheep have gone astray. Jeremiah 56, we are all lost sheep. Jesus looks out at a crowd in Matthew 9. He looks at them, he says, they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, all of them. That's you, that's me. Eugene Peterson, one of his books, puts it this way, that Israel's exile was a violent and extreme form of what all of us experience from time to time, from womb to grave. Uh, a, a dramatic instance of experience by being alive, simply by being alive. Us has been a sheep without a shepherd. And every one of us has been scattered at one time of our lives. Every one of us has been cut off from our hope. Every one of us has had a sense that God's blessing has left us. Every one of us in the room has had that at one moment or another. 
uh, in Jesus' declaration as well as Ezekiel's vision that the scattering of the people of God, the scattering of the sheep, the exile is not the end of the story. Here's Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. See if you hear Jesus in this. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, when he is with them, so I'll look after my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places they were scattered out of on the day of clouds and darkness. I'll search for the lost. I'll bring back the strays. I'll bind the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. I'll shepherd the flock with justice. Put succinctly, I'm the good shepherd. Isn't Jesus amazing? You see, in Jesus, God gathers us in. He's, he's so good. And he's, he's so beautiful. I mean, he's the shepherd of the, the true shepherd of the lost sheep. He's the one who leaves the 99 to get the, get the one, right? In Luke 15. Or you put it differently, Jesus just, he loves the world so much. John 3, 16. He loves the world so much that he really, he looks out at the world and he sees people who in this world, including you and me at times, he must reach. He came to gather in every person that's walked the face of this planet. It's his very nature to lead. That's Jesus. And which begs two questions I want to leave you with before we move to the next thing he does. Who in your life is lost? If every person that walks this earth is somebody that Jesus died for, and every person is lost, then who in your life is lost? This is that verse Jenny spoke to earlier, or she spoke to a little group of us earlier that talks about this. I have people in, that are not in this fold right now, that are scattered that I'm not speaking to you right now. Who's in your life? You think of them. You just know, man, they're in exile. It just could be somebody facing a depression or a diagnosis that just wrecked, their, wrecked them. And you're looking, I don't, you don't know how to deal with this with them. It could be con- confronting the collapse of their marriage. It could be someone who's caught up in a dis, uh, like an addiction or a besetting sin, a secret sin, but they told you about it. It could be someone facing like real loneliness and loss. There's so many ways you could be in exile. Is there anyone in your life right now? I think Jesus is inviting you to think of them. And then the second thing, where are you lost? Just because you prayed the prayer doesn't mean you're found in the fold. We tend to be like sheep. Just walk away, right? Forget about Jesus. I'm discouraged. I can't really pray right now because there's too much happening. I'm distracted. Where in your life are you lost? Where are you wandering? There's that old song we sometimes sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know God loves you, and yet you're prone to leave. How am I wandering from God's heart? That's the question Jesus is pressing into us. Is it a spiral of addiction? You're lost in it. You have no, you don't know how to get out of it. Uh, Is it in a broken relationship? I've shared many times of the brokenness in my, my, my family with my parents and my sister. And there have been times in my life where I've just been like, I have no idea how to get out of this. Lost in your lack of hope for the future. Lost in your calling and your vocation. You're stuck in a job. seems like that movie, Office Space, right? Might you say to God this week, pray this prayer together this week. Seek me, good shepherd. Find me. Gather me in. Lead me home. Draw me out. See, and seek those who in my life who are lost like me. Uh, and use me, God, in your gathering work. Give me the courage to stand beside them as you lead us together with your help, Good Shepherd, with your help. Would you pray something like that this week? So 
Jesus gathers and scatters. That's just what he does. That's why he's so good. Okay, here's the second thing. He invites us into deep friendship. Here's verse 14. It, he says, I'm the good shepherd twice. So whenever something's repeated, pay attention. And then after he says it the second time, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd beautiful. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And here's what this means. The beauty of God, the goodness of God is revealed in Christ through intimacy with Jesus. Okay? So this word to know is never knowing about Jesus. He's not saying, memorize some scripture. That's good though. Don't, I'm not saying that's bad if you do that. He's not saying, just get your doctrines and your concepts and your Bible verses down and you'll know me. Right? Come to church a couple times a month. Get in a Bible study. Like, do those things. Know me. He's not saying that. It's never about that. It's knowing God in the Bible is always about relationship. Always. That's why God comes as a person. It's about intimacy, about being known inside of a relationship. Why do you think God would do that? Because he wants you to know him physically. It's expressed in a deep mutual knowing. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. It's mutual, okay? This alone is true leadership. If you're a leader of other people, it's all about intimacy. Whether that's at work, in your home, in your neighborhood, it's all about friendship. So uh, there's this book that Richard, our senior pastor, turned me on to. It's this little devotional book called Wild Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. And it's 40 Daily Reflections on Biblical Leadership. This guy, Timothy Lanick, wrote this for his doctorate in ministry one year and went on a sabbatical. And he spent, I don't know, a year with all these shepherds in the ancient Near East. Or not the ancient Near East. In the Near East. Yeah, he's an old guy. And... uh, (laughs) Sorry. He wrote these reflections. So I've been reading these and they're really interesting. So here's, he writes this little chapter on being known, how shepherds know their sheep. Here's what he says. He does his interviews with these shepherds. I had an interview with Abu Manir. I asked him how much contact he had with his flock of 2,000 sheep. He was an affluent man with two wives. By the way, I'm not, this isn't about that. Each living in a separate home, <laughs> which seems like a good idea. But, uh, <laughs> And he had hired help overseeing different subflocks. Okay, so he's a rich man. He clearly didn't need to be out in the fields. And his answer surprised me. I'm with my sheep every day. In the summer, think rich man, mansion. I sleep outside with them too. And then he said something even more surprising to me. If I weren't with them every day, I shouldn't be their shepherd. I met two other shepherds, uh, this author says. One man over 80 one woman over 100 years old, both of whom insisted on keeping a small flock, even though they had pressure from family to give up their animals. The response from both was the same. I can't live without them. They're family. (laughs) Can you think of being family with a sheep? I mean, kind of ridiculous. But that's shepherding. That's what Jesus is saying. I know my own, my own know me. I'm family with you. That's why I call you brothers and sisters, not servants and slaves. I call you friends. So that's profound that Jesus sees us that way, that he has a desire for constant contact with us. It sounds great. What does it mean? Like, especially if you struggle with that. We talk about intimacy, union with Christ all the time at Bethany, if you've been around for very long. What does that look like? Well, here's a couple thoughts. Think of your prayer life. Think of how you pray and when you pray. It's one way to contact God. And I'll just say this very bluntly. Unless you're praying, not only 
every day, but during the day. Not just every day, like in your morning quiet time, but during at night on your bed, but during the day, unless you're doing that, you're not coming to Jesus as a shepherd. That's not constant contact. Uh, you're not relying on him. You're not consulting with him. You're not crying out to him like a sheep would. You haven't encountered him that way. You're not depending on him. You're looking at him as a guy in the sky, a savior, which is fine. He's savior. But you're not trusting him as deeply as he needs you to trust him. That's, you need to rely on Jesus in your prayer life. That's what it means to be in constant contact. To pray without ceasing means when Jesus interrupts you at your desk to stop what you're doing, stop the email, and talk to him. It means when your children are on your nerves and you have no idea what to do next, take a moment. God, I, I need help. I'm alone. My spouse is at work. I got nobody right now. Do that and you've encountered him as a shepherd. Okay, that's number one. Number two, there's this other aspect. You have to let him be in charge of every area. Like if you haven't given every area of your life over to Jesus, he isn't leading you. If there's an area of your life where Jesus doesn't have authority or lordship, he isn't your shepherd. Sheep, like I said, don't get to do things for themselves. They can't. They're incapable of it. And so if you say, I'm a Christian, I know I shouldn't be doing this thing. Or Jesus can have all this over here, but not this. Whatever this is, control of your bank account, leadership over your family, direction over your career, whatever that is. If you're holding on to that, you haven't given Jesus lordship. He's not your shepherd. And he wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. There's no privacy in communion with Jesus. No autonomy. He's good, but he needs it all. Okay, that's the second thing. Giving him everything. Saying, Jesus, I give you this. What will you do? The last thing I'll say is, very often sheep feel like a shepherd's killing them. So Timothy Lanick here, in this book, in other chapters, he asked uh, that these shepherds sometimes, when they found a lost sheep, so there's that story of Jesus finding the one, left the 99, you know that parable. He watched some shepherds do this. They would go out, find the lost sheep. They, they would grab the sheep, seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its legs up, and then carry it home. You've seen pictures like this. I have this wood carving from Kenya. Actually, uh, can you see this? A little shepherd boy with a sheep. And it's so beautiful. Like, I should put it here. I was given this by a friend from Kenya after I became a pastor. He, he carved it and sent it to me. It came in the mail one day. Just said, hey, welcome to the, the, the vocation of shepherding. And until I read, read these, it's just so comforting. It's to my desk downstairs. Yeah, like Lannick says, it's so violent. Like the, the sheep might be saying to themselves that they could think thoughts like, what gives, man? I'm just a little sheep. What's the deal? Like, I'm harmless. It might even think it's a, it's a predator come to kill it. And yet, here's something he observed. They completely trust their shepherds. They, there's no resistance, no struggle. Like they throw it to the ground. The sheep doesn't even do anything. And why? Because the sheep has entrusted itself to the touch of the shepherd, the voice of the shepherd, the, the hand of the shepherd. They absolutely trust their shepherd. They have to. So right now, it's possible you're experiencing a time in your life where you're wondering, why is all this rough handling, why is God allowing all this rough handling to happen to me? You don't get it. You're unsure what's going on. You're tempted to resist and push back and kick. God, why? Why me? I've been good. <laughs> and my question would just be this, is Jesus your shepherd yet? Do you trust him? Like, do you? 
Shepherds don't, or sheep don't fight back. Do, do you, do you, have you been with them enough? Have you prayed with them? Do you trust Jesus? That's my question. And my encouragement to you is, is to just declare him that way. So if you, if you don't know if you trusted him there, just to pray this verse or to pray Psalm 23 sometime. Make it your own. Good shepherd, I know you're with me. I know you lead me even through the valley of the shadow. I know you're with me. I know you're good. And I'm grateful for that. And this is my life. Will you live it with me and through me? So are you grateful that Jesus knows you this way? That there's this intimate knowing that he's good? Might we be grateful? I struggle with that. I'm with you in this. I wish I knew it better. (laughs) But that's why we're in community. And so would we know that and rest in it? That's what it means for Jesus to invest in deep friendship. Okay? Here's the last thing I want to say today. And we'll come to the Lord's table. He is the, he is the ultimate servant heart. So this is in like verses 11, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18. Four times he says this. I lay down my life for my sheep. So whenever you hear, see things twice in a passage, pay attention. Four times like this is the main theme. Okay? Pay attention to this doubly. Which it just simply means this, that good leadership, beautiful leadership, ultimate leadership is ultimate service. Uh, Have you ever had that waiter or waitress that just serves you so well? Think of that 100 times better with Jesus. Everything you need. And, And his ultimate service is articulated this way. I lay down my life, which means he's going to die. He's talking about his death. He's kind of tipping the hat toward that. And that poses a big problem, actually, real big problem. See, for a Palestinian shepherd to die would have been a really rare occurrence, okay? Would have been losing your business. <laughs> because his plan was to live for a sheep. A dead shepherd meant, like I said, dead sheep. And yet Jesus unambiguously says this four times. The purpose of the good shepherd is to die. I'm here to die. I'm the good shepherd. I'm here to die. That's a bad business plan, okay? So what does that mean? That, what, is, what good is a dead shepherd for sheep like us? We're just going to wander and we'll be dead soon, right? Isn't that where you take that? Well, think about what you know about Jesus so far, okay? If you've been with us throughout Lent, he's living water, he's bread, he's the door, he's the light, he's the good shepherd, okay? But there's one thing we're not talking about during Lent that I think we need to keep in mind right now. He's also the lamb. Not one of the great seven I am's, not historically. But in John 129, if you back up to the very beginning of John, the first I am, it's not Jesus saying it, actually, it's his cousin John. So he sees John, his cousin, sees Jesus coming to him from baptism, right? And he's dumbfounded, this rabbi, he's, John's the black sheep. <laughs> he's like, he's like the, he's this Bedouin fanatic. He's out there, he's in the wilderness, you know him. And remember what John says to Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? So he's the shepherd lamb. The shepherd lamb. Which is a terribly mixed metaphor, but it's not my mix. It's God's. (laughs) So there you have it. Uh, At the very end of the Bible, here's what I mean by that. Revelation 7, remember this. I've been thinking about this all week as I've been preparing for this message. And I'd never seen it before. But in Revelation 7... It's the Apostle John, who's the author of the Gospel of John. He's getting all these apocalyptic visions of the future, all these visions, and here's one he got. It's John 7, 17. Sees the throne. In the middle of the throne, there's an animal. And the animal is 
a lamb, the lamb of God. So there's John 1.29 again, okay? And yet here's the key. And this is the part I hadn't noticed until this week. He's not merely a lamb. This is what John says in John 7.17. The lamb's at the center of the throne and he will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the shepherd is the lamb. And not just a shepherd living as a lamb in disguise, okay? He doesn't have a lamb suit on. He is truly the lamb and the shepherd at the same time. A lamb who is slain, right? Which for some of us is a difficult image to embrace. uh, But one that is here and is part and parcel of what the life life and leadership of Jesus is really all about, okay? So the greatest and most beautiful act of leadership that Jesus, that God ever did was submitting his life like a lamb to slaughter, right? And unlike a typical shepherd whose plans to live, Jesus' plan was to die from the very beginning. It was his set purpose. So I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down. Who has power to die? (laughs) I have the power to lay it down just like I have the power to take it up again. I have ultimate power and I have the ultimate servant heart. See, good shepherds don't normally sacrifice their lives for their sheep, but the good shepherd did. Okay. The death of a good shepherd, it just meant disaster, death for the flock. But the death of the good shepherd, if you see him as the good shepherd, the lamb and the shepherd at the same time, the death of Jesus is a cause for joy and a source of our very life, or the source of our very life, I should say. So he has the ultimate servant heart. He has that for you Today. He offers that to us at this table. And inasmuch as you'll just come to him in faith and say, Jesus, give me your life. Broken for me. One of my theological heroes, I'll finish with this, a little quote. His name's Leslie Newbegin. He once put it this way, commenting on John 10.10, or John 10, this Good Shepherd passage, and this idea of Jesus laying his life down. The path of freely willed and obedient surrender to the Father is the way in which Jesus is. This is Jesus laying his life down and along which he leads his people. This is why he says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Suffer with me. At every moment, Leslie Newbegin says, the, the face, they face the powers, we face the powers which threaten to diminish and destroy our lives. But we are masters of a secret alchemy by which loss is transmuted into free gift, death into life. And it, Every step, we face the power that negates life, but we turn that negation into triumph when we say, no one takes this life from us. We have, the, we have the power to lay it down freely, just as our Lord did. This is the way for humankind, and to fall this way is to learn true leadership. So we're facing a crisis of leadership. And the thing we do as we lay our lives down in, in the midst of that crisis. And we say, good shepherd, live your life through us. Live your broken life through us and redeem the world. So are you on that path with me? If you are, I want to invite you to the table this, this morning to respond. Let's pray. Good shepherd, we thank you for this powerful metaphor And how it speaks to each of us, both personally and our community collectively. 
Thank you that though we are sheep, battered, scattered, you are good. You are the good shepherd. You have sought us out. You have brought us home. And though it's not fully home, we know that all too well, God. We're on a journey with you. You're leading us. So God, might this be the next step in this journey? God, thank you that you died for us. And then in a couple weeks, we get to celebrate your resurrection. So this morning, as we come to this table, as a taste, a foretaste of that, would you fill these gifts, simple gifts of bread and juice with your spirit and fill us with enough faith, audacity to come before you and ask for more. Pray these things in Christ's name.